Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. Let's come to the Lord in prayer as we begin our study this morning. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you so much for for this church and the the privilege and blessing we have of being connected with with brothers and sisters here locally and and uh, the opportunity to come and to worship together and be uh, to encourage one another. We thank you for this opportunity now to open your word and to study together. We pray that we might hear from you. We pray, Father, that our ears and our minds will be attentive, that you will speak through your word, that we might know you more intimately, that we might love you more fully, that we might live for you faithfully. So, Father, we ask your blessing on these moments ahead. We ask it in our name, the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I encourage you to take a Bible and open it to the book of Philippians to chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I do want to thank you for allowing me to be away from you over the last couple of weeks as I was at uh, youth camp week before last and then uh, last Sunday as Pastor Larry was preaching, I was recovering. Uh, <laughs> For some reason, I haven't figured out why yet, I noticed that my post-camp recovery takes a little longer than it did 40 years ago when we started doing camps. Uh, but what a great, fantastic time we had with young people. What an amazing group of kids and leaders. Thank you for supporting camps and for uh, not only with your giving, but with your prayers. The Lord did some marvelous things, and we'll hear more of that in days ahead, I'm sure. The Apostle John, in the fourth verse of his third letter, says these words. He says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in the truth. That is the true, the heart of a true pastor, a true shepherd. And I speak for myself as well as I think most of the old-timers here at the chapel, those of us who have been around a while, who have invested yourselves as teachers, Sunday school teachers, children's workers, youth workers, camp workers. What a great joy it is, as well as a humbling thing, to see kids who have grown up in this church and kids who have been a part of Awana and part of children's ministry and part of Sunday school and part of camps to see them growing up into godly men and godly women now raising their own families a number of kids at our at our camps uh, youth camps and children's camp this year they were children of kids who grew up here and who've been a part of our camps it's an exciting thing seeing the next generations come. We've had many young people grown up to be 
leaders and servants here in this church and leaders and servants in other churches and other ministries and other places as they have moved out into various places throughout the world. Some have become missionaries like Emily Rizek, who was sharing here last Sunday with us. Some have become pastors. What a marvelous thing, and it is an encouragement to us all. Ministry also brings with it heartbreak when over the years we see some who wander away from Jesus Christ. Some in apathy, some into sin, and even a few who have abandoned the faith and even curse Christ. As we come to this passage here in Philippians chapter 4, that is what is on the Apostle Paul's heart. Pastor Paul is concerned that those whom he has seen come to Christ, those to whom he has ministered, those to whom he has poured out his life, the folks here in Philippi as well as in other churches and us today, He is concerned that they stand firm, that we stand firm, that we do not fall away from Christ, that our love for him does not grow cold. So Paul writes here in verse 1 of Ephesians 4, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, My beloved, Paul's concern for these believers is that they stand firm. The first word in this verse is therefore, which most of us know is a word that acts like a hinge. It swings back to what came before and swings forward to what is coming next. And so this word takes us back to what just was said before and then it moves ahead to what follows. And when we look back into what just preceded this, if you just look up from chapter 4 there to chapter 3, the end of chapter 3 in verse 20, it says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's our real home, not here. We really are no longer, in reality, citizens of the United States citizens of this land or some other nation on earth. Our citizenship is not earthly. Our citizenship is heavenly. That citizenship trumps all else. We are citizens of heaven. And he says we await a Savior from there, a Savior who is coming to rescue us, to rescue us out of this world of corruption, this world of sickness, this world of death, this world of evil. And to take us to our heavenly home. Won't that be good one day? To be done with this stuff. This Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign of the universe. He will take charge and subject all things to himself, it says. He will defeat all evil. And he will transform us. These bodies that are frail and weak and temporal, he will give us heavenly bodies. He will transform our nature 
as well, where we will no longer have that sin nature that so plagues us, how we look forward to that. In summary, what he says is we have a glorious future, a glorious hope ahead of us. And he says because of this hope and because of this future, therefore, moving from those realities that just precede this now to verse 1, he says, therefore, stand firm. We need to stand firm in the Lord. In the Greek, that word, those two words, stand firm, are just one word. It's a word that is often used to describe a soldier, a soldier who is on duty and a soldier who remains resolute and in place and does not give ground. He holds his position. Whatever comes at him, he does not move. I'm always amazed when I see those guards in front of the, the palace in England who stand there with those big fuzzy hats and those big uniforms no matter how hot it is and they stand there and no matter what people are doing in front of them, they never move. I'd last about 10 seconds and they're there. Those soldiers who guard the tomb of the unknown soldier moving back and forth, walking, doing the precise rhythm, the precise drill, never wavering no matter the weather, no matter what goes on around them. Standing firm, he says. Paul wants these believers and he wants us to be stable, to never waver, to never quit, to never compromise, to never give in, but rather to remain strong and faithful in the Lord all the days of our life because we are citizens of heaven and we have a glorious hope glorious future. Paul knows, however, that as citizens of heaven, we have an enemy, an enemy who is relentlessly attempting to take us down. He wrote another letter to the folks in Ephesus, to the Ephesians. Most of you know in Ephesians chapter 6, he begins to talk about our enemy, the devil. And he knows that We need to encourage them and challenge them to stand firm against the devil and his schemes because the devil desires to get us to abandon our following of Jesus Christ by distracting us or by discouraging us or by entangling us in sin or any number of other evil schemes. And so it's good that Paul encouraged the Ephesians to stand firm. And he told them to take up the armor of God to do that. And here he talks to the Ephesians and he says, stand firm. And I think that's good that he encourages us to stand firm because we need that encouragement. But at times when I read that, I think, okay, but how? It's easy to say stand firm, but how do you do that when the onslaught is coming against you and you are discouraged? How do you do that when things around you disillusion you? How do you do that when the temptations are coming strong and hard? How do you do that when there is persecution and opposition? How do you stand firm? I always think it's funny when you see in the movies, you know, and some person is hanging there from, you know, whatever it is, some precipice or some ladder on a helicopter, you know, or whatever, and they're hanging by a thread, and and people yell down, hang on, 
like they need to hear that. If I let go, I die. What do you mean? Hang on. You know, help me get, help me find a solution to my problem here. You know, it doesn't help you to hang on. You're hanging on with all you got. And sometimes you feel like you're doing all you got to stand firm. How do you stand firm? That's where the next little word in this sentence really becomes important. You see, he says, stand firm thus. Stand firm in this way. Stand firm like this. Stand firm in this manner. And then what Paul begins to do in the next verses is to explain how to stand firm. Stand firm thus is followed by seven commands. Stand firm thus. Seven commands, and these seven commands, I believe, give us some good insight, some good wisdom, and some needed instruction in how to stand firm. This morning, we're just going to deal with the first one. And over the next few weeks, from now up through Labor Day, we're going to look at the other commands that are here. And hopefully, it will help us to stand firm. To remain faithful in a world where it is difficult and where we have an enemy who is trying continually, persistently to take us out. Stand firm. Well, what are we to do? There's the instruction. Stand firm. Verse 2. I entreat. I like the way the NIV says it. I plead. In other words, I beg. I entreat Yodia, and I entreat, I beg Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The first of these seven commands is to agree in the Lord, or the way I've put it for our study, to stand together. For us to stand firm, we need to agree in the Lord, we need to stand together. Paul is writing this letter from prison, most likely prison in Rome. And he's written this letter and he has sent it through one of his assistants, Epaphroditus, who has gotten it from Paul in prison and now has traveled from there to Philippi. And he's brought it to these folks there, the Philippian church. And the next time they get together as a church, probably the next Sunday... This letter was read, and I can just imagine the family, the family of believers gathers, and oh, there is excitement in the air. Epaphroditus has arrived from Paul, and he's brought a letter addressed to us, and people are excited. Paul, the great apostle and our dear friend, who dearly loves them, and you'll see this all through the letter, excuse me, as we read. If you read the letter all through, he talks. And even in the verses that we just read here, he just said, "My whom I love and I long for, my beloved. He has poured out his heart to these folks and, and in love, and they have responded. They love him as well. And so I'm sure they are just so excited to hear this letter. 
And as Epaphroditus, it probably is the one who reads it. Maybe their pastor read it. But I think if Epaphroditus was there, he read it himself. He kept it sealed up till everybody was there. So nobody got the preview. He begins to read. Everybody's hanging on every word. As it's read, everyone is going, oh, yes, yes. Amen. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Oh, yes, we want to know Christ too. Paul says, you know, I, I, I want to be like Christ. And everybody's, yes, we want to be like Christ too. Paul says, we're citizens in heaven. Everybody, yes, we can't wait. We're so ready to go to heaven. We're so ready for Jesus to come back. Paul says, you need to stand firm. And everybody, yes, yes, we are going to stand firm for Jesus. We need to do that. And suddenly Paul's words move from generalities to specifics and from people in general in the church and he names names. Two ladies, Yodia and Sinctity. And he says, get along. Agree in the Lord. Can you imagine being there that Sunday morning? They're gathered in church and all of a sudden you hear your name. You're one of the prim and proper church ladies there. You're Yodia or Sinctity and you hear your name in the letter from the Apostle Paul. But it's not, you ladies are so awesome. It is, stop fighting and get along. If they had pews, and I don't think they did, they were probably crawling under them at that moment. (laughs) Oh, goodness gracious. The horror. Why does Paul do that? I don't think Paul is in the habit of just, you know, let's see here, who can I I embarrass today? Who can I humiliate today? Paul's an encourager. He's one who builds up, strengthens people. Why does Paul write a letter to this church and then publicly call two ladies out in front of the whole church? You know what that tells me? It tells me that conflict among believers, conflict in the church, is a big deal. Division is a big problem. We can give a number of reasons why. This book is all about joy when you read through it. Paul is always talking about his joy. Here's a guy in prison. He just exudes joy. He just drips with joy on the pages of this letter. You'll have to go back and read the whole thing. You see, it's just all about joy. And he calls us to be people of joy. But conflict, division, is a joy killer. I wonder, have you ever been in the car in the car, traveling on vacation, and these words have been uttered in your car. If you don't knock it off right now, I'm going to turn this car around. Any of you uttered those words as a parent? (laughs) Most of us have heard those words as children. We heard it a lot. There were three of us boys. Actually, it wasn't we're going to turn this car around. We're going to stop this car. (laughs) This car is going to keep going, but you just won't be sitting very well. 
<laughs> Comfortably, anyway. You know, you can be in a wonderful place at an all-inclusive resort where everything is provided, all the food you could want, delicious food, activities. They've got water skiing and tennis and, and uh, you know, horseback riding and everything. It's all included. Being an all-inclusive resort in a wonderful place on Hawaii, Jamaica, Mom, Florida, Disney World. You mean a, a place that's just, you know, just almost like heaven in all these things. And all it takes is one dispute, one disagreement, one argument that creates division between you and your wife or between you and your children or your children with each other or you with your friends, if you were there with friends, and it turns this little place of heaven to Hades. You ever been there? See, dispute, conflict is a joy killer. As Christians, we are citizens of heaven. And so when we're together as believers in Jesus Christ, it should be a little slice of heaven. But far too often, it's not. You know, Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is awesome. But when the unity is not there, when there instead there is disharmony and disunity, it is a joy killer in our churches. It's a joy killer in our homes. It's a joy killer in our ministries. Back in chapter 2 here of this letter to the Philippians, Paul writes, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. When we are on the same page, when we're united in spirit, and when we're intent on one purpose, there is, it is a place of joy, happiness. When there is division, when there is conflict, not so much. By the way, I'm saying all this not because this is a church with, that's going through big conflict and division. One of the great joys of being in this church over the last 40 years, this has been a place of very little conflict. Never big major, always minor. That has been a joy and a delight. It makes it easy to be a pastor here. It makes it easy to be an elder here. Be a shepherd. Thank you for that. And I know it's because many people work very hard to promote unity and to promote godliness. Conflict and division is not only a joy killer, much bigger than just that, because it's not about just, well, then we're not as happy as we would be, but it also tends to spread. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy in his second letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul warns Timothy. He warns him against godless chatter and about quarreling because he says it will spread like gangrene in the body. 
Division can grow like a cancer and it spreads to other people as people begin to take sides on this side or that side. Then instead of a church being like-minded, as Paul called us here to be in, back in Philippians chapter 2, instead of us being like-minded and having one love and being united in one spirit and one purpose, the church begins to divide into factions. And it can even result in churches that split and break up. Many of us have been around churches or even in churches where that has happened. It's a disastrous thing. It destroys. It destroys ministry. It destroys churches, splitting churches from the inside out and more, even more significantly ruining our testimony to the world outside. Yodia means sweet smell. Sinctity means friendly. But their relationship is not friendly and it doesn't smell good. It stinks right now. And whenever we fall into division and dissension as a church, whenever we fall into conflict as believers in Jesus Christ, we fail to live up to our name as Christians. We fail to live up, see, to be being followers of Jesus. That's what a Christian is, a follower of Jesus. A few months ago, we were going through John chapters 13 through 17. You may remember in John chapter 13, Jesus said this to the disciples. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. When we do not have love for one another, instead when we have conflict and division, we betray our claim to be followers of Jesus. It doesn't look that way from the outside, from people looking in. They don't look like a follower of Jesus. They, instead, what the world says is we look foolish and hypocritical. So conflict is a joy killer. It tends to spread. It destroys. It also is spiritually dangerous. The, the ancient storyteller, Aesop, most, most of you know who he is, he used to tell this story. says... A lion used to prowl about in a field where four oxen dwelled. Many times he tried to attack them, but whenever he came near, they turned their tails toward one another. So whichever way he approached them, he was met by the horns of one of them. But time passed, and eventually the oxen fell into quarreling among themselves. And each ox went off into a corner, a separate corner of the pasture where they grazed alone. Then the lion attacked them one by one and soon made an end to them all. And Aesop, you know, always had a moral to his fable. And the moral to his fable is very familiar to us. United we stand, divided we fall. There's truth in that as believers in Christ That's exactly why Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1 of this little letter and he said, stand firm, the exact command here, stand firm how? In one spirit. We cannot stand firm very well if we are divided. If there is division in the ranks, we are subject to falling to the enemy's attacks. So how do we deal with division? Does Paul give us any insight here? Well, the first thing I want to note is actually what I should never do, which is make a point or make a comment 
in silence. In other words, what Scripture doesn't say or what Paul doesn't say, and I'm going to make a point on that. But I should never do that, but I'm going to do that. How do we deal with division? The first point is don't sweat the small stuff. I notice when I read this story that there's no detail given about this quarrel between the ladies. We don't know what it's about. We don't know how it started. We don't know who's at fault. What that tells me is that probably it doesn't matter. And the reality is most of the times that I have seen in my years of ministry and in my years of life, most of the time that people get divided and get their underwear all up in a bunch and get all, you know, and all, you know conflict starts, it's usually over something that isn't very big. Paul doesn't take sides. He doesn't place blame. He simply says to the two ladies, get it done. Agree in the Lord. Put this behind you. Don't argue, don't fight, don't get aggravated over things that ultimately are of little consequence. Just as Paul wrote there, I mentioned 2 Timothy chapter 2 a moment ago. He says all this quarreling and stuff is often over things that don't matter. Words that are useless. Paul says here in verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What Paul does say is he says, I ask you, true companion, help these women. There's a little bit of an argument among theologians about this. Who is Paul addressing here? And there are three options. This true companion that he says may refer to somebody in the church specifically, but he's not named, he's just described. A true companion. And everybody knows when you say the true companion, everybody goes, well, that's Bill. Bill is a true companion. Bill helped these ladies. So maybe he's addressing a specific person. Other people say, no, 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 that's not what it is. What he's referring to here is this The word true companion is syzygos, which also can be a proper name. And so he's addressing a guy whose name is syzygos, who just happens to mean true companion. So syzygos, help these two ladies out. A third option is that he's addressing the whole church in an open invitation. If you're in this church, if you're a true companion, if you're really a part of this church, then help these ladies out. May I say... For all the squabbling about which it means, it doesn't really matter because the point is the same. Somebody do something. (laughs) Somebody help these ladies. Get them together and say, get it over with. This is immature, it's foolish, it's stupid, and it's hurting the body. Let's deal with the issues. Don't ignore the problem. You see, when there is conflict, when there is dissension between believers, it affects all of us, and so it's all of our business. All of us should be doing what we can to help the issue. First thing to do what we can is to make sure we're not part of the problem, that we're not ones out there taking sides and picking up gloves and starting to fight. We're not ones out there gossiping about so-and-so and their problem, but rather we are ones who are seeking to Resolve the issue. Fix the problem. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 said, 
Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers are people who go and try to make peace where there's conflict. We all should strive to be peacemakers. Not only those who aren't in conflict with others, but those who try to fix conflict when it arises in one of our dear brothers, with some of our dear brothers and sisters. Somebody do something. Another thing to do here in dealing with this division, notice Paul says there in verse 3, he says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. Paul says, let's take a trip down memory lane. You Philippians, don't you remember how, how it was that it wasn't that long ago that Yodia and Sintity and Clement and all these other folks and me, we all worked together, we were laboring together, fighting together for the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus with other people. We were busy working hard, side by side, he says. Why does Paul take a trip down memory lane? Because when we're fighting each other, it's a symptom that we've forgotten our purpose. When we are fighting each other, we have forgotten why we are here. Our citizenship, as we just read in the verses preceding this, our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is there. That's our destiny. Why aren't we there? What can we do here better than, than we can do in heaven? Or what, what is there in heaven that we can't do better here on earth? There's only one thing that we can't do better in heaven than we can do here on earth, and that is tell people about Jesus. Why has he left us here? Because there are people here in this world who don't know Jesus. It's a lost world. People are going to hell apart from Jesus Christ. And so he gave us a mission, Acts chapter 1-8, you are my witnesses. He gave us a mission, Matthew chapter 28-19, go make disciples. How do we deal with division? We need to remember our mission. We need to refocus again on why we are here. He has left us here because there are people who don't know Jesus. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Peter writes in his letter, Why has the Lord not come back yet? Well, he is patient, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The day will come when he says, that's it. Till then he's waiting for one more, for one more, for one more. Remember our mission. A fourth way of dealing with division, a fourth thing we need to remember He says back in verse 2, he says to these ladies, agree in the Lord. We need to remember that ultimately agreement is found in the Lord. What unites us is not our preference in music. What unites us as Christians is not our sense of style and fashion. What unites us is not the hobbies that we love. What unites us is not... All kinds of things. It's not what unites us in Christ is not the language that we speak or the color of our skin or whether we vote Republican or Democrat. What unites us as people, what unites us is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we are children of God, joint heirs with Jesus, citizens of heaven. And if there's something that we don't agree on, it doesn't matter because we should agree on all those important things. All the things that are here are the things we agree on. 
All those things that tend to divide us, we put aside because they don't matter. Agreement is found in the Lord. Ultimately, disharmony is a spiritual problem more than a relational problem. It's a symptom that we're out of line with Jesus, that we're out of relationship with Him. When we put Jesus in His proper place as Lord of our life, we simply cannot continue to live in disharmony with other believers. It is simply incomprehensible. If you doubt that, go back to chapter 2 of this little letter and read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Because there he calls for us as followers of Jesus to have the same attitude us, which was also in Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and became a servant who sacrificed his desires for us, who sacrificed himself for us. And if we become that kind of person walking in Jesus' footsteps, we will not be getting out of sorts with so-and-so because they had a different view of how this should be done or how that should be done, of what color the wall should be painted or what color the carpet should be or how loud the music should be. We don't care about that. We both love Jesus with all our heart, you see. Agreement is found in the Lord. Conflict among believers is a serious thing, serious enough. Paul calls them on the carpet. It will impair our ability to stand firm. So Paul here gives us some important things to deal with that. One last comment as I close this. And that is, I see in this little verse here, these two little verses, I see a warning. Beware. The warning is this, any of us can fall into this trap. These ladies were apparently very prominent women in the church. My guess is they were part of the initial crowd when when Paul stepped to Philippi and he went down by the river and he found some some Jewish women down there and he talked to them about Jesus and they became followers of Jesus and they were the seeds that planted the church. It wouldn't surprise me that these two ladies were right there in that first group. These ladies were the pillars of the church and yet they succumbed to this thing which was undermining and destroying the church. This is a problem which can affect today, likewise, faithful believers, leaders, Sunday school teachers, elders, deacons, pastors, people who should know better, any of us can fall prey to this scheme of the devil. Not only will Satan use it to shake us personally, but he can use then us as tools, even as leaders in the church, to shake a church cause much damage in the whole church of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, again, I'm so thankful that this is a church, has historically been a church of peace. And I'm not aware of right now anyone at odds with anyone. What a good thing. But let us be vigilant. Paul calls us to stand firm, and this is one of those things that Satan loves to use to destroy believers to take them out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. While I may not be aware of things, people here may be in the midst of a squabble, of a 
spat of a fight. There may be conflict brewing. I ask, Father, that you would keep us mindful that this is not a minor thing. It's a big deal. And it's dangerous. And may you this morning remind us how important it is to keep our relationship with you primary. That when we keep you in perspective as Lord of our life and Lord of all, these other things tend to go away. When we keep our eye on our mission and our purpose, we don't get sidetracked in things that people so easily fight over that really are not important. So, Father, I pray for all of these folks who are here this morning and all watching this morning online. Father, may we not fall victim to this because we desire to live for you. We desire to live in love and in harmony and in joy. And we desire to be effective in the mission. To be able to point people to Jesus where they don't look at us and go, well, you're a bunch of hypocrites. But rather they marvel as some of those in the Scripture do. They, they marvel at the believers saying, my how they love one another and how they love Jesus. May that be what people see when they see us. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.